Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. I've been called on to answer a few questions on Quora recently and elsewhere about, you know, modern microprocessor execution properties. Really what's come around to is feet of your programs are defined more or less by the number of cache misses you have and not by instruction execution hardly at all. So it's, you know, we didn't used to be this case, but as processors got faster and faster and memory did not get as fast as processors got faster, Eventually, memory became the big and only major bottleneck, and everything else got you know, pretty zippy. So, so you know, how did we get here, and what did it look like? So, when I was a kid, you know, hacking on Z80 chips, you know, 30 years ago, processors were much slower. Well, transistors were a lot bigger, and a big transistor just takes time to fill up with electrons and then discharge them. And as a consequence, the actual execution instructions was more expensive than going to memory. And that meant that you you go faster, you counted instructions carefully and didn't have so many of them. You tried hard to reduce the count of instructions. And as a good compiler writer who's trying to convert you know, C or Java or whatever into assembly language or machine code for machine, carefully count instructions as part of a standard job of optimizing the, the task at hand. And as time went on, the microprocessor builders, Intel and ARM and AMD and whoever, found more and more ways to burn transistors to make the same set of instructions go faster, but they couldn't make memory go faster. So they made going to memory happen either less often, or they did something useful while they were waiting for memory. And this turned into things like you know, caching and then ever larger caches and hit or miss caches and out of order execution and so on. Transistors shrank the actual processor speed got faster, so the clock rate, that seems to have topped out at two and a half to three gigahertz. Um, and, and the reason it topped out is because you have a power issue now. If you, uh, the heat goes up as a cube of the frequency. So if you keep adding more, you keep running the frequency higher, you keep getting hotter and hotter. And you hear about these overclockers with massive cooling. Well, that's what they're doing. But the cube law just rises too fast. And pretty soon, you know, you, you've got something glowing like the, the heart of the sun and you just can't go any faster. And furthermore, as you get it hotter, um, and there's more stress at the electrical components. You actually actually get migration of the atoms in the silicon matrix. The, the, the transistors basically eat themselves up, um, and you can destroy a chip by overclocking it without even overheating it. So, you know, skipping that, th- there is this frequency limitation we had. Fine. So then Intel found more and more ways to add transistors to go faster at the same clock rate by doing the same set of instructions faster. And you know the first and the obvious one is you pipeline them in multiple stages. And then there was wide issue where you try to issue several unrelated instructions and do them in the same clock cycle, basically have you know, kind of sort of the same processor replicated three times over, all doing each parts one after another. But then you get serialized on various issues like branches, so you have branch prediction, and then you get into speculative execution because you issued some instruction like a load to memory and the memory was slow. But you could do other things while you're waiting for the load to come back as long as you needed didn't need to do anything with the value you're waiting on to come back. And so you got speculative and then out of order and, and all kinds of other fun games. And these all basically topped out some years ago. And so the next obvious thing was you made the caches bigger and bigger and bigger. That also topped out. And what you have is what you know Intel's best effort at a fast transistor, a fast processor today is, is that the execution of instructions runs at two and a half to three gigahertz, pipeline very heavily and very wide issue, out of order, everything else. And you can imagine that you know, while on average only a couple of instructions happen per clock cycle, up to like four, but uh, you know, a missed in main memory is like a thousand clock cycles. Okay, so that means you have 
hundreds to thousands of instructions that can happen for every cache miss. You want cache misses to be very rare, and they relatively speaking are, but there are some coding patterns that people commonly do that lead to way more cache misses, and I'll get to that in a minute. The real story is you get to do a lot of work while you're waiting for the cache miss, and then you're just stuck waiting for the value to come back from memory. And so the processor tries its best to run forward until it can get the next several cache misses going and get them pipelined and running. Um, but it's all the time waiting on memory. So more or less instructions are free. So I say more or less, there are some cases where they really count. These will be things where all the work is actually living well in your caches. And then, and then you actually can be processor speed bound. And there are some, some interesting programs that do that. People who do dense algebra of various kinds can fall into this camp. They can also be in the other camp of waiting on memory all the time. Computing like Mandelbrot fractals, which is all like add, add, square root, divide kind of things. These are all totally CPU bound, very little memory involved. Yes, CPU speed bound. Looking at giant arrays of data, um, very quickly the arrays become larger than your cache. Very quickly you're waiting on your memory pipeline all the time and your memory bandwidth bound. Um, and you know the, the more recent Intel processors have more memory bandwidth, but they still have more clock cycles to spare than they have memory bandwidth by a lot. The whole, you know, I, I ran out of cache issue shows up in performance issues in lots of other places. And in particular, it shows up for people who have a programming language whose implementation um, touches a lot of memory to get something done. So, so this gets into the cost of, you know, the cost of everything, the cost of nothing. It's what is the cost of having, you know, like an indirection pointer through everything you do. So you get into funny languages like Python and R and some of these older ones where people experimented with very flexible kinds of programming styles. And it makes for very easy to write language um, and easy to sort of use and manipulate. But the actual implementation of the hood demands that you do one or two levels of indirection. And these are fetched memory where in a language like C or Java, that is not demanded and you can go, you can skip the extra layers of loads to memory. So while those loads are in your cache, they're still relatively slower than instructions, but they're still pretty fast. But once you quit hitting in cache, then they become the easily the bottleneck. And because you have lots of these, every little thing you have, you have a memory object, so JavaScript falls into this. Every number has a wrapper around it, you know, at least in theory. And that turns into a lot of footprint in your cache to hold on to the object header words, the pieces, parts that make up an object that are not the data content that you want to think about. Um, and, and that fills your cache with this. And then your cache doesn't have room for other things and you get more memory accesses. Um, a funny thing happens in garbage collected languages. Um, in a standard garbage collected language, the bump pointer allocation is, a, is supposed to be really cheap. It kind of sort of is. And it is not. It's cheap because bumping a pointer and comparing it to be running out of memory is, is really cheap and essentially free given the cost of instructions to the cost of memory. But the cache line that you get when you allocate is never been in your cache for a long time because it came around from the last GC cycle from a long time ago from some unrelated piece of work that you were doing a long time ago. So it got thrown out of your caches eons ago. It's a guaranteed cache mess. You're going to load a line, uh, and when you do a new allocation, you're going to load a line that the processor has not seen forever. It's not in its cache. You're then going to scribble onto it, usually full of zeros, and then you overwrite some of the zeros with real values. And the scribbling, if it doesn't completely fill the line, and the processor doesn't have enough smarts in it to recognize that the line has been filled before it fetched from memory, goes ahead and issues a fetch from memory. So it fetches 
It uses one of its rare, special, I want to say, say scarce, that's the right word, scarce resource of memory bandwidth to fetch a line you're going to fill completely with data, and so it's a dead fetch. It's fetch of dead memory. After you fill the line, you use it for a while, and it's hot in your cache, and it runs perfectly fine, it runs well. However, after a while, you know, if the garbage collection works, that is, the generational assumption works, and most objects die young, then you quit using it because the object was dead. And it's still sitting in your cache, but it's dead now. And after a while, the cache is always full, it's always under pressure, and the processor recognizes you haven't touched this cache line in a long time, so it writes out that cache line. Now, the line is a, for a dead object, so you wrote out a dead object as well, and, and as a consequence, in any large, busy, running Java application, about a third of your bandwidth is loading deadlines, and a third of your bandwidth is writing deadlines, and a third of your bandwidth is for stuff that's actually written out because, you know, the cache was full, but it wasn't actually dead, and it got written back in later. And, you know, sort of the standard everyday, here's what my processor's doing kind of work. So, so Java, but all garbage-collected languages, suffer the problem of object allocation has a real cost to it, both in cache footprint and memory bandwidth that makes them run slower on average than an equivalent well-running non-allocating program does. Okay, well, you know, the other flip side of that, of course, is that garbage collection lets you write programs a lot faster. When you're writing programs faster, you have more time left over to either add more features or make the processor, make the program run faster if that's what your goal is. You know, you, you figure your right goal out and you spend time on that. So I'm not saying you shouldn't use a garbage collected language, but just be aware that there's a cost. As you go from garbage collected to always demanding a wrapper around small integer objects and small floats and doubles, which is what a bunch of languages do. I mentioned several, Python, R, JavaScript, or, or amongst them. Then you add another layer of overhead for little tiny objects that you make bazillions of, and they also flood into your caches and fill it up and cause you to run. It's one of the reasons you get to run slower for that. When you're looking for you know high-speed, hot, fast coding, you do need to think about living without allocation, even indirect one that's fundamental to the language, and that makes you look at how you, you know, look at patterns of, of dealing with data. So one of the, the, the more interesting ones that's easy for people to wrap their heads around is the difference between a linked list and an array. So I'm not talking about the ability to manipulate, I'm talking about the, the performance consequences. So let's look at an array and a linked list as two kinds of containers and what are their properties. So a linked list has the property that it's always easy to get to the first item on the list and to get to the nth item on the list, you have to walk through in things, chasing pointers all the way. Well, the pointers indirect through memory every time, and there's a real cost to that. It, it can't go any faster, that even if it's all cache hits, then one every few clock cycles, because the load in your L1 is still like three or four clocks. There's a cost to getting at things in a linked list. That's interesting if the list gets beyond, say, a, a, you know, a few dozens of items. Beyond a few thousand, a linked list actually becomes inappropriate for many tasks. It's just the wrong data structure becomes very expensive. There is a cost to go access items beyond the first one. You can, of course, remove things on a list very rapidly, and this means it's a it's ideal for uh, behavior as a stack structure. You know, first in, last out uh, kind of operation. Uh, and there are a lot of uses for stacks, no question about it. And you you can it, it's conceptually very easy to think about how a list works, especially in sort of functional programming languages where you do a lot of things with recursion. And the list structures and recursion go hand in hand. They they fit well together. And it makes for an easy coding paradigm. However. For every object that's on a list, you have a linked list header and a pointer to the next, and that adds to the size of the objects as well. So if your objects are small and you add a couple more words to them, then they might double or triple in size on top of everything else, and it fits in your cache and has issues. Okay, let's look at arrays, and they have a different 
totally different layout. The objects are forced to be one after another, uh, back to back to back. This has a consequence that the address or the way you find an object can be computed uh, from first principles by simply uh, you know, an add and a multiply, or a shift and a multiply, a couple clock cycles. So there's no memory references to get to the address of an object, and then you can load or store for whatever cost it says to touch your cache. Now the next thing that happens is if you're walking a linked list and you take a pointer chase for each item, there's a real cost to get to the next item. And the, the pointer chase in the linked list goes to an item that might not be on the current cache line. It might be on some other cache line. And if that cache line's not in memory, you're going to pay the cost to go get it. Um, you know, the memory cache line miss cost. And, and it will bounce you around in the different layers of caches as it goes. Whereas in an array, it's the case that this next several items in a row will all be in the same cache line. And if you're walking that cache line and walking that array end to end, unlike a linked list, the processor will recognize the pattern of accessing memory and prefetch. He'll guess that you're going to want the next cache line and the next and the next and get those operations started as early as possible so that he can pipeline, you know, pipeline it through. And as a consequence, while walking through n items in a linked list and an array, both have the same, you know, big O notation time, they both take some sort of linear amount of time, an array is often a thousand times faster than the linked list. So a thousand, not, not twosies and foursies. Little arrays, little linked lists, yeah, the numbers are closer. The bigger and bigger that linked list gets, the bigger and bigger the array gets, the more likely you're in toward the thousand side of things. So it's hugely faster. Now, in an array, you can make a stack out of it by putting things in and off the head cheaply. Turns out you can do that same operation, I'm sorry, with a linked list. You can same operation with an array, get this right. With a linked list, it's obvious there's a head, you can push on, pull off, you can make a stack out of it. Same operation with an array, but you work at the other end. You have an index, which is the size of the array that's actually being used, and you can add or subtract an item off the end uh, by bumping the, array, the, the pointer into the array, the index that you have the fill amount at. And it behaves just the same as a stack, except it actually has better cache footprint as well, and so it can run faster than the linked list version. The, another thing you can do with arrays is as a container class, you know, a linked list, you make a new linked header every time you make a new object to put on the linked list. And the cost to make a large linked list is, is proportional to the number of items that go on where each item grows in size by the linked list header. It gets added a, a constant extra per item. So for n items, you have n extra headers. For an array, you have one, one little header structure at one end, and then the array runs till it's full, and then it's full, except you play the array doubling trick. And what is the array doubling trick? It's a very old data science trick that should be taught, uh, probably is taught in the you know, 101, CompSci 101 courses. And it's simply, when the array gets full, you double the size of the array and, and copy the items from the short array to the long array and carry on. And asymptotically, it has the same cost, it's linear, as like the linked list, ver linked list version. Asymptotically, it does not have the extra header objects per word, but it does have, on average, uh, one quarter of the array unused and left over off to the side. So the memory footprints are similar, but the actual constant of proportionality is really low on that array version. It's much faster for just the constants, that thousand X faster speed up thing I'm talking about. Even with all the copying that happens as the array gets bigger, it's still hugely faster than the equivalent giant linked list. When I do my coding things, um, I will frequently use arrays where I have a trade-off. I could use either a linked list or an array sort of equivalently. I'll use an array because it's just faster and consumes less memory. And if I need to write a little wrappers around it to make it behave, 
than I do. And in the land of, of template programming in C++, you use the square bracket operator overloader, it's like disappears under the noise. In Java, it's called ArrayList. That's exactly what an ArrayList is. It's a doubling array under the hood, and an ArrayList has all the asymptotic properties you expect, plus it has all the push and the pop and blah, blah, blah that you might expect. And then the other operations that you can do with a linked list where you cut things out of the middle by stitching them back together, you can do them on the array object, but it has more cost as the array gets bigger. And in linked list, the cost is finding the nth item, but cutting the nth item out is, is constant cheap. And in an array, finding the nth item is cheap. Cutting it out is expensive if you want to preserve order. So there's another trick on arrays that I do all the time. This is for work lists that have a priority queue-like effect. If you want to pull something out of the middle of an array, but you don't care about the order, you can take the last element of the array and put it over the item you cut and then bring back the size of the array by one. And you have a count for the length of the array and you take the last item and you jam it over the one you just removed. Um, and that has the effect of removing an item out of an array, but it scrambles the order, which turns out to be generally completely useful for work list type operations. And there's a couple other scenarios where it works out great. So it's just one of the ways you can get closer to the kind of use cases you get out of a linked list while preserving the speed goodness of an array. Okay, so enough about linked list versus arrays. Uh, what other fun things? Oh, somebody asked me about, about branch prediction and, and what's the branch target buffer versus branch prediction and why is it there? Because the why is it there is because when a processor is executing and he comes up to a branch instruction, if he has the data in hand, he'll do the branch, he'll test. Is this value greater or lesser, whatever the test is, and jump or not jump to two different parts of the program? So how you do an if and else, right? Um, if he doesn't have the data in hand, because the data comes from a load instruction that missed in cache, the processor would like to be able to keep executing even though it can't, because it didn't know how, which way the branch goes. So we do branch prediction. Now, if he gets it right, then he gets to run ahead without having the loaded value in hand. If he gets it wrong, he has to roll it back. And this would be a, you know, a branch prediction fail. You get a, a branch stall goes on there and there's some you know, rewrite rollback of the processor state to try again. That happens, but branch predictors are actually pretty good. And the, the, the goal of being good there is to actually run forward to get to the next load that misses in cache and get two cache misses running in parallel. So the average cost of a cache miss gets cut in half you know, by however many you're running in parallel. Okay, so back to a branch prediction, how does that actually work? You know, the typical hardware instruction says, compare something in a register to another register or to zero and jump or don't jump, whether you're less or greater or equal or not equal or whatever. They don't look at the values. Even if they have some, but not all the values, they just look at the branch because the actual branch instruction in memory in the, you know, in the processor's list of instructions has certain properties with them. Some kinds of branches will typically only ever do one thing and some branches are more irregular. If I'm looking at coding Java into you know, machine code and I'm emitting a bunch of instructions, I have to do a lot of note pointer checks. It's baked into the language. But rarely do these note pointer checks actually fail, but they have to be tested. So here's a branch, or you know, that's rarely, rarely actually failing. So what I do is I arrange for that branch to be a forward jump. Now, why do I do that? Because the, the compiler engineers and the hardware folks have mutually come to a conclusion that a, a branch that the processor has never seen before has a forward and a, and a backwards direction. If it's going forwards, so by default, assume it's not taken. And if it's backwards, so by default, assume it is taken. So what that means is if I have a branch where me as a compiler engineer looking at Java, I know this test rarely fails in practice, I make it a forward branch. And the hardware, when it runs to it, will predict that it's not taken, that is, 
you don't have a null here, you actually have a value, and you're going to carry on. And he's, he's right like 99.9% .9 of the time and occasionally fails, but on average, the branch is really cheap because on average prediction works. Same thing for the backwards branch. Um, if, if, it's a, if it's a backwards heading branch, the processor will assume you're about to head into a loop and he'll predict backwards, go back into the code and then run forward again, and now you're heading into a loop. As soon as he sees a branch that he did not predict correctly, he puts it into a branch prediction table. And he starts counting bits of how often and where he's seen this, this branch. And, and this gets in the case of branches which are like one and three go left or right, or one and four or one and five. He starts to make guesses on which way it goes. And you know, on average across all branches, this kind of branch prediction um, is accurate to like 95 to 99%. It's pretty darn accurate. The key there is he's got a, a table in hardware that matches a branch instructions program counter address to a true or false, a taken or not taken. And, and usually some counters for trues and falses that are, because you know, of hardware limitations, they're, they're cut down to like two bits or four bits. It's like zero, one, two, many. You know, it's a, you got a, your caveman counting, you have two bits, you got four states, it's zero, one, two, many. And that's how he tells whether the branch should be predicted left or right or up or down or whatever. There's another version of a branch, prediction ta uh, branch predictor called a branch prediction table, uh, um, I'm sorry, branch target buffer, blah, 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 BTB. And that one is one where, uh, given a branch instruction, instead of guessing whether I'm taking it or not taking it, I guess where it will go to. And, and the usefulness of this is sometimes they have branches that drop to the contents of a register. This happens every time I have a virtual call that I did not otherwise get rid of with it. the compiler for doing class hierarchy analysis or put in a, an inline cache uh, predictor, which is another cheap prediction mechanism. <laughs> if I'm staring at an actual megamorphic unknown virtual call, I don't know where it's going to go. And then, uh, so the branch target buffer simply has the address of where he thinks this branch will end up at even if he doesn't have the, the value in hand that he's going to jump to. Because the value in hand is going to start from take an object, you're doing a virtual call, and load its header, load the class object header, load the virtual table list header, and that, you know, the address of the instruction to jump to. So it's like three loads in a row. Likely is not some omission cache. Also, even if they didn't, because of the load dependencies there, there's like 12 clocks at least on that sequence. So he just predicts what the address is by looking up this table. If you got it right, you know, hey, great, he carried on. If you got it wrong, he had to roll back and try again. So, so you know, branches, uh, branch target buffers and, and branch prediction tables have two different mechanisms they use, but they're both doing the same goal of having the processor carry on forward despite missing information. Speculative execution is exactly the, what happens when you take the branch prediction um, you're now speculatively executing until the branch resolves, until the load comes back, and you get to compare the value to whatever and know the flags are true or false, the branch should go or not. You're now in speculative execution, which means that all the updates to the processor state are scrolled off to the side somewhere in a speculative execution state. And then if you're successful, they get mapped back to the main processor architecture state. And if you fail the branch, they get thrown away and you go back and try again. Out of order execution is uh, a little more advanced concept where you just acknowledge that the processor has an architected, architected state as is visible by the instructions, by, from the instructions, but the actual implementation doesn't look like that at all. It has many, 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 many copies of the architected state, and he does speculative execution, perhaps down multiple paths, perhaps through multiple branches, um, and he executes things in the order that he can 
And if one part of the program doesn't need bits from another part, he might go further ahead on that path or get more bits done before he has to fold it into other parts of the program he's running. He's basically executing things out of order. And as part of the, the final, you bring it all back together, um, he forces things down into the architected state and instructions before he commits it to a way that's visible to the program itself. It's very similar, if you've read anything about a Java virtual machine, it's very similar to the save point notion where the compiler will scramble up all the operations uh, of the Java bytecodes between two save points. But at the save point, he'll bring it back down to the Java architected state, the Java virtual machine's architected state. And at that save point, you might get a debugger interrupt and stop and have a, a debugger be able to uh, inspect the state. And you'll see exactly what you expect to see on the Java program. But in between the last two save points, things were wildly out of order and had no relation to the Java program at all, but you couldn't inspect it at that point. Same issue, the, compiler, the hardware guys were doing this for a long time. So anyhow, um, I've probably rattled on long enough about this stuff. I have a lot of other fun knowledge about uh, you know, low-level hardware compiler bits. If people are interested, you can tweet me or hit me up on Quora, uh, and I'll be happy to answer questions. And as always, you can go to my website. I have about a decade of interesting blogs uh, covering all sorts of things with programming performance at www.cliffc.org slash blog. Uh, and with that, you know, have a great day, and, and I hope all your Java performance hacking, well, performance hacking in general goes great. Thanks. Bye-bye.